Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by... We've got good news. The world is open again, and people like you, people of faith, are traveling to Catholic sites around the world. Want to travel with exceptional Catholic leaders this fall, next year, or in the future? Are you looking to see specific sites, celebrate traditional Latin Mass, or travel to destinations without vaccine requirements? We are here to help you deepen your faith on pilgrimage. Give us a call at 1-800-842-4842 or visit us online at selectinternationaltours.com. Select International Tours is your pilgrimage company, and we have the perfect Catholic trip for you. Are you looking to serve God and society? Consider putting your gifts to work as a lawyer. Ave Maria School of Law has been educating faith-filled lawyers for over 20 years. Ave Maria School of Law is committed to training lawyers to use law appropriately around the moral issues of our time. Visit AveMariaLaw.edu to learn more about integrating your faith with a law degree. Welcome back to Off the Shelf here on Breadbox Media. I'm your host, Pete Sox, the Catholic book blogger. And today we have with us Professor Christopher Malloy, who is married to Flory, and together they have seven children. He teaches theology at the University of Dallas. He has published two academic books and numerous scholarly articles. Today we'll be discussing his book, False Mercy, Recent Heresies, Distorting Catholic Truth. Welcome to the show, Christopher. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. So I got to say, um, you know, they tell you never judge a book by its cover or its title, but what a unique topic for a book. What was your catalyst for writing this particular book? Confusions. It, it, everybody's confused. I shouldn't say everybody. Many people are confused. People with their, with their heads screwed on straight, you know, they're not, they're not, you know, extremist or panicky and they're confused, you know, is the faith changing that kind of thing. And so for two and a half, three years, actually probably for four years, I've wanted to do something like this. But about two and a half years ago, I sat down and said, posted on Facebook, I'm writing this book. Mm-hmm. I just, I want, you know, people to realize that they can have confidence that the Catholic Church is not changing her faith. Uh, and that despite what they hear, you know, that they'll hear a, a headline here, a headline there, that makes it sound as though everything's changing. And so part of the book is just the ABCs about some disputed issues today saying no these are uh, these are doctrines and they're not changing yeah for sure um this the soundbite um world we live in today right exactly exactly no i mean i had a grad student and uh she she works for a parish she's got a number of kids and in graduate class her questions were sharp and they they showed you know good intellectual capacity and that she's well read you know Immanuel Kant this kind of thing so she's asking good questions after class she's coming to me saying is the faith changing mm-hmm. and like really anxious about it and so I, I I told her I said actually I've got a book coming out and you know it's questions such as this that remind me I gotta I gotta keep writing I've gotta write quickly <laughs> 
So because there are so many headlines that are really puzzling people. Uh, and, uh, and you know, the, the thematic unity of the book is, you know, the, 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 the sense that, ah, well, you know, it doesn't really matter what we live, how we live our lives uh, on Earth. You know, we're, we're pretty much guaranteed a slot in heaven if it exists. You know, that, that's kind of, I think, where a lot of people feel like things are. And mm-hmm. so we, we don't have our, we don't have heaven as our gravity, our center of gravity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because in some sense, it's been, it's been trivialized or boiled down to just a word and not an actual, I guess you'd say, a physical place. Yeah, I mean, a re- yeah, that's right. A real place. And then also... I mean, we've got it. We've got many blessings, and uh, it, it, you know, and especially as Americans, and uh, I, it's easy to take things for granted when you have all these blessings, mm-hmm. and then to think that this world is what we're made for, and then you know, you get sad about losing out on this or that, you know, you know, legitimate enjoyment on Earth. Um, mm-hmm. Let's say you know, at the ball game or. Um, you know, going hunting or whatever, which I just did this morning. Uh, and so, you know, just things like that, and you miss out and you think, oh, well, I'm, I'm really missing out. I'm, I'm less human. No, um, you know, maybe you're, you know, maybe there's a situation of you're offering it up. Well, have we heard of that lately? Uh, <laughs> you know, and, and that heaven is our, our end destiny. None, none of this stuff lasts. Yep. Um, and I guess it's easy to kind of feel like you're floating around. Um, and we and we talk about the divine mercy, which is fantastic. We need uh, we absolutely need the divine mercy, especially you know after after we sin. But what I think we've done is, and that's why I call the book "False Mercy." We have distorted in various ways the divine mercy. Mm-hmm. And Romans two at the beginning of that chapter, Paul says, "Do you not know that the mercy of God?" And his forbearance is meant for your repentance. And that just really, I think, hits home today that we can't just bank on, you know, God, uh, you know, he will forgive us till the day we die. But nonetheless, we can't bank on it and then just mm-hmm. say, oh, well, I'll, I'll put off my conversion now. It's, it's kind of like the, you know, fourth fifth century you know saint augustine's time let's put off our baptism until the end that way we can slide into heaven (laughs) without any purgatory right right right. so the book essentially pulls back this curtain on um, a modernist movement that's rampant in the church and in the world today how did this movement develop over time and why is it so dangerous yeah that's that's a good question well it's not the exact same modernism, uh, clearly, as at the beginning of the 20th century. So for listeners who know the modernism from the early 20th century, that was, uh, in, in a way, it had many specific features that, you know, they're not simply present today. One feature is, uh, notably, and that's doctrinal evolutionism. So the old modernism, you know, uh, as part of the uh, fruit, I could say, of the core idea the core idea was basically that religion's an, an inner experience. Um, and then everything else is just kind of an articulation of that. So the, the whole thing is just an inner experience. And there's obviously truth to the, the, uh, the deepest aspects of our religion. No one can see, mm-hmm. um, you know, like the Eucharist, we, we can't see the Eucharist faith goes in. Uh, but notice that 
Christ came visibly in the flesh preaching. He preached truth that you can understand, you can hear, you can understand it. And then with the Holy Spirit moving you, you can say yes or, or reject the Holy Spirit and say no. Uh, so that, in other words, it has a very strong visible, physical, external um, way into you. That seems the way, that's the way God has dealt with the history of the world mm-hmm. through specific people and um, Abraham, etc. And but most notably, our Lord. And um, that's the so the old modernism just says it's all within, and then Christ, it, our Lord, becomes kind of a myth or you know, a really good moral man, that kind of thing. The, the, the modernism that we see now is people getting with Catholic theologians. Let's be clear on this. This is Catholic theologians um, and even prelates uh, getting away with subverting the Catholic faith in the, let's say, the good intention that some of them will have mm-hmm. is to try to make it Palatable is not the right word, but make, you know, express it in modern terms, express it in contemporary terms, uh, take the beauty of the faith and translate it for people. That's, that's a laudable goal, by the way, um, listeners um, that uh, will hear, you know, a traditionalist talk about the old modernism, um, they, they will, um, they will, they will not, um, shy away from saying that there was there were some good intentions there with some of the people that might have looked like modernists they weren't modernists but they might have looked like it namely let's make the faith let's translate it for the people of our our day and let's show them that it's not incompatible with um genuine claims of philosophy you know that are kind of vetted or with certain scientific theories that can you know can be legitimate uh, maybe we don't know that they're you know more than uh, a verified hypothesis but they've got some they've got a lot of evidence behind them mm-hmm. example would be evolution uh, so that's a great intention the problem is is when you begin to well there are deviants let's go on the opposite extreme there are deviants who reject the faith and what they want to do is you know adapt it um, for the contemporary mindset. So if the contemporary mindset is relativistic, the theologian wants to adapt it. Example, chapter nine. Um, so is sodomy permitted? Answer, no. Uh, but, and you know, we can go, you can go into details, but mm-hmm. point blank, no, it's not. But we we know there are popular priests out there that are, uh, through their ambiguous messages, basically promoting the idea that the church's teaching is is or has is going to change or has changed on that topic. That's an example of a deviant who um, basically dresses himself up as someone who's translating the faith, building bridges, that kind of thing. But no, as a matter of fact, what you're doing is perverting the Catholic faith. Mm-hmm. And, and that, I mean, why? So you're giving poison. I mean, if Christ, if Christ came. With a true message, why are we twisting it? Translating is one thing; twisting it is another. Right. So, in the beginning of the book, um, you include this section that has a bunch of graphs. Which, by the way, nice touch. I'm a fan of graphs. Thank you. They <laughs> they relay the message 
very well. And they're very attention-grabbing. Um, every graph shows a sharp decline from the 40s and 50s until now in priests, seminarians, religious brothers and sisters, marriage, baptisms, about everything that's important to the Catholic faith. You look yep, at that graph. Except, except you said 40s and 50s. The, the climbing begins. So where, where we have data, um, now I wish that I had more access to even more. And believe me, this, this stuff needs to be explored more and more. Right. But uh, the, you start, in America, there are about 17 million Catholics in 1920. And then that climbs beginning of the third millennium. That's about 63 uh, million. And now I think we're dealing with about 70 million plus. Uh, so population keeps going steadily up. Mm -hmm. But the number of priests goes up until 65 and then it plateaus uh, until the 80s when it starts declining. Mm -hmm. The seminarians and the sisters and the brothers, they all go sharply up to 65 and then at 65 they go sharply down. All three categories. Mm -hmm. uh, adult baptisms, infant baptisms, those peak um, I think 60 and 70 respectively. Uh, so again, pivotal year seems to be around 65 so, you know it's close to 65 marriages peak at 70 catholic marriages um and so those are that's a diachronic study of you know what what's happening vocation wise as you said the, the heartbeat you know marriage um sisterhood brotherhood and priest priestly life and it's it certainly raises an eyebrow <laughs> well it does it's 65 what's going on it does. And the other thing that it does is if we look at that number and we look at that visualization, it can kind of lead to some despair. So what can we do to reverse that and what should we do to not get lost in this throwing our hands up and walking away? I'm, I'm so glad you say that because um, that's absolutely something that I want to uh, encourage uh, is uh, I want the book to be an encouragement. For us to recognize, A, the Catholic faith does not change. She's The Catholic Church is not watering down her faith, nor can she water down her faith. She still gives us the noblest vision of human life on earth. Life is worth living, as the great Sheen you know, used to say. And we want to spill our blood for this faith, whether we're martyrs, like actual physical martyrs or we are just simply you know the humble person no one knows you know she shuffles into church comes back home maybe bakes a loaf of bread for herself maybe not even never got married you know from all these different angles right mother of 10 you know children uh father of eight children busy person here busy person there we need to orient our lives to Almighty God at every moment. We need to make Christ the king of our hearts at every moment. And yes, we'll, we'll sin. We'll, we'll make mistakes. Mm -hmm. Get back up. Lean on the mercy of God because he is rich in mercy, as he himself says. And then be fired up about starting it, you know, getting back in the saddle and doing it again and doing it again. And the, the devil will, I mean... This is the thing. I, th I do think the devil will despair. If he sees Catholics 
getting back in the saddle and trying to do it, then his kingdom's coming to an end. Mm-hmm. Right now, we all feel like, ah, maybe we got another 30 years on this on this planet, and then who knows what. Well, let's let's get sober. There are so many signs of truth of Christ, what he said, and of his church, the Catholic Church. Whether you talk about the shroud or the tilma, and those signs are open to rational inquiry, and they they kind of dovetail with the hunger that we have. We all have a hunger. We want to know the truth. We want to know where we came from, where we're going. Um, and because we have that hunger and God gave the signs, we're responsible. And so we can live life nobly by discipling Jesus Christ and feeding on his body and blood in the Holy Eucharist, which he gives us through the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a, that's an awesome life. And it's a life that, you know, as we lay dying, I hope, you know, that I, I get the last anointing. And I, I will say, you know, thank you, God, for helping me live a good life. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the only thing that lasts. Um, and now I know we eulogize anybody who dies, and that, that's kind of absurd. Uh, we need to start praying for them. But, but nonetheless, if someone has lived, you know, you, when you go to that anointing or um, you see someone dying that has lived well, or at least towards the end of their lives, they've lived well, that is so deeply consoling. Mm-hmm. because that that's what life's about mm-hmm. it's pretty you know i mean living well as oriented to heaven living well on this earth as oriented i don't mean everything is like uh digging your grave right but but i do mean every last thing is oriented to god so mm-hmm. as i said we went hunting this morning you know and i you know giving thanks to jesus christ for you know uh, being the one through whom the whole universe is upheld in being and giving us these these uh, animals to feed mm-hmm. feed the family and uh, give glory to God. It's awesome. Yeah. So we keep dancing around this one topic, and you start big in chapter one by addressing that false notion that the church changes over time. So can you give us a little bit of a detailed summary, so to speak, as to where this came from? And, you know, we know it's false, but why, why did it come to fruition? What is sparking this thought? That's a harder one to answer. Um, you know, so immediately what you can say um, is that um, the church decided strategically to make some changes in the way she communicates. And she's free to do that, mm-hmm. you know. We're not bishops. The bishops in union with the Pope, they are free to make these uh, strategic uh, changes. And so John the Twenty Third, especially if you read his opening address at the Second Vatican Council, talked about the substance of the faith remains one and the same, but the way it's expressed can change. And that's absolutely true. As a matter of fact, let's just say it's justification. The way it's expressed uh, among Eastern Catholics is uh, through deification language, that kind of thing, participation in the divine life. And in Western Catholic language, we use the words justification, and they have a little bit more juridical uh, edge to them, if you will. And both are aspects of the truth, and they're complementary. So there's legitimate diversity um, at the same time, and then also through time. You know, the Church does develop, her doctrines do develop. 
but uh, a nice image of development is organic development where you have the same species let's say a, a, a tree that at first is a sapling that doesn't have all this structure but it is the sapling you know let's say the oak sapling mm-hmm. and then over time it unfolds so what what is its nature what's there from the beginning is articulated and unfolded with greater and greater precision and you could call it concrete beauty so christ comes and preaches a deep message that the church over time as questions more and more precise questions are asked of her you know in the face of philosophical or scientific discoveries uh, or claims she responds with greater and greater precision on the basis of that deep truth that Christ gave us. And this is organic development. Now, evolutionism is where you have, you know, a dinosaur, and then later on you have some kind of mammal. Um, You know, and I know that's a crude, uh, but you've got a, Mm -hmm. a, a new species done with the old. So, the modernists want to say, well, we're done with the old dogma. Now we want a new dogma. And they don't mean translation. They mean revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the problem. Now, what, what happened is there were some players uh, in the 60s, theological players. They're having, um, they're having their powwow meetings um, as things are unfolding at the council. And they are, as it were, already plotting the uh, change in doctrine, how they're going to interpret this stuff, and even how they're reading it. So it's, um, it's a very complicated affair. The, um, you've got the texts, and you've got how different people were wielding um, expressions in those texts, uh, some you know, wielding it in continuity with the great tradition, as Pope Benedict talked about mm-hmm. benedict the 16th um and others as it were seeing um opportunities for uh, rebellion by using uh, certain say phrases uh, or um, approaches to undermine the past and so that's what i would basically say is that what we need to do is we need to uh, read that council in continuity with the tradition of the church. And so that's one of the big themes you can see going through is I keep doing that. I say, like, mm-hmm. there'll be, let's say, an ambiguous phrase. And I'll say, well, what, what's the church's teaching pertinent to this issue? And we lay it out. Uh, and so what if we know that the church has infallibly taught A, B, C pertinent to this issue, then I know that the claim, this new claim, let's call it P, if it seems to be contradictory to A, well, I know that I must be reading it in a way that I'm not allowed to read it, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, so I know that I can't come to the conclusion, not A, you know, not what the church infallibly teaches, just because um, of, you know, what I think it might mean, you know, when taken out of context of the tradition. So it, that's basically what I uh, am, am inculcating is a, a discipline of, know the tradition of the church and read the developments and there are developments in the second vatican council and later read these developments in harmony with that 
tradition, which is your anchor. And if you do that, you won't lose the infallible teachings of Holy Mother Church. Mm -hmm. And we're not allowed to lose them. So it's it, in a way, it should be a pretty innocuous um, hermeneutic isn't maybe the precise word, but a, a, a recipe, a, a set of uh, judgments to think about what is the faith? What does the church claim about you know X, Y, and Z? Well, once again, if A, B, and C are already taught, then X, Y, Z are not contra you know contradictory to that. So the church doesn't doesn't change her mind in that way. Now, so I do. So there's the nefarious players um, that are there in the '60s. They're to some extent they're prepping. Um, you know, for a kind of a revolution through their theology in the 50s. Mm -hmm. And then they just go hog wild and they're not disciplined in the 70s. And I would say they're not disciplined now. So for the last 10 years, they haven't been disciplined. In the 70s, they weren't disciplined. And in the 80s, you saw kind of a recovery of, wait a minute, you know, we, we, we haven't lost our head. You know, we're still the same church. And so, you know, many journals and magazines and things have popped up. And I would say... 15, 20 years ago, many things, many things popped up. So blogs, um, how old is, I don't know how old your own, your own um, outlet is. Almost 10 years. 10 years. There we go. So many great fruits um, have popped up that are, you know, lovers of the great tradition of the church and open to developments, which we always have to be. We're not, um, you know, we're not uh, just stuck in, in 1940 or something mm -hmm. like this. Uh, there's developments, but uh, these developments are always of the same species. It shouldn't be rocket science. Sodomy mm -hmm. isn't like a mortal sin one year and then approved <laughs> the next year. That's right. absurd. You know, the one thing that keeps the bubbled up throughout this book to me, um, and it's Ten great chapters, a lot of stuff here to to dig into. Obviously, we don't have time to do that today, but I encourage everyone to get the book False Mercy and discover it on their own. But I'm a convert. I came to the faith by recognizing the authority of the church, uh, understanding the hierarchy of the church and why by design that works. And faiths like the one I came from, the United Church of Christ or UCC, broke away from her for one reason or another. All of those reasons being dreamt up by the guy that decided to create that new um, uh, religion. And it seems to me, as an outsider, when I came in, that I recognized all these other outside organizations that broke away did it because they didn't they didn't want to listen to the authority of the church. They didn't agree with the authority. Well, now we have it that we have Catholics inside the church with that same mentality that aren't breaking away, but they're trying to change it. So yep. how do we go about correcting that? Yeah, th th so this is horrible analogy. Um, mother and father have the authority over their parents. Uh, and let's say early on in the marriage, they've laid down some, some rules, so there's some expectations. But then there are lacks in... Uh, enforcing those some of the basic rules let's say basic rules of respect uh, of order uh, re re conflict resolution they just don't pay any attention to them and they let the kids run amok and disagree with one another and the kids are saying you know this is the rule no that's the rule 
this is chaos. Mm -hmm. This is no way to run a house. Um, You know, such parents really, uh, by friends or whomever, should be reprimanded. Um, And so the church is a house, is a family. And she needs to have clear guidance. She needs to give her children clear guidance. And when she doesn't, um, and then the children, that's us. And that way you, you can include to some extent, you know, prelates in that. I mean, mm-hmm. they're, they're both children. Every, everyone is a, a son or daughter of the church, including the Pope. Um, and some, uh, so the, the hierarchs are also not, not just sons, but they're also fathers in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, but insofar as everyone's a member or a, and a son or daughter of the church, um, you know, all this bickering back and forth, this is so unhealthy. I mean, yes, there's to some extent, there's always going to be some amount of, you know, tension and rivalry. And Bonaventure had his angle and Aquinas had his angle. They had a nice rivalry, but they, you know, loved each other for sure. And they also knew the basics of the faith, and they weren't budging on those, right? So when they had disputes, it was about technical issues, and they would they would say, you know, you're flat out wrong to each other uh, through their pen, basically. Mm-hmm. But they would say this, and with great respect. All right, so you can you can have that kind of tension, you know, in a fruitful way. What you can't have is what we're, what we have now: absolute chaos. What happens when? Um, fathers and mothers aren't governing their children. The children will assume the governor, you know, the mm-hmm. governing uh, role, and but they will wrongly. That's you, you know, usurpation. At the same time, what else are they going to do? So that's what's happening right now. Um, we do not have good governance. Since we don't have good governance, Catholics are popping up and you know um, starting to try to, as it were, take the reins, and that's improper. That's not their role. But at the same time, you know, what else do you expect? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, so it's um, it's a real disaster. Now, at the same time, I keep saying, you know, there are good catechisms out there. Um, I mentioned uh, on another interview, John Harden's catechism, you know, and, and there's probably more than one that he's got, frankly, um, easy ones to follow, that kind of thing. The compendium is a good one. You just want something basic and clear, uh, the ABCs of the faith. That kind of thing. John Harden, highly recommend. Ludwig Ott, The Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma, highly recommend. We need to know our faith, and that's how we can move forward past this you know, bickering stage. And then we need to pray. There's, it reminds me, there was a scene of, in Teresa of Avila's life where all the nuns, she, she was foisted on this convent by the bishop, and the nuns didn't want to have anything to do with her because they knew she was strict. And her first act when she got into the convent was she got on her knees and one of the sisters that was her ally prayed the Te Deum. By the end, all the nuns were praying the Te Deum. They went from almost a frenetic, you could say satanic. I mean, there was certainly something, uh, there was certain something demonic going on, rejecting her to seeing her on her knees and hearing the great prayer Te Deum and it just sobered up the nuns. Well, that's what we need. We need we need to become saints. Uh, and that, that might sound like a trite, but it's why we shouldn't repeat it unless it's 
absolutely true and fundamental and mm-hmm. it is absolutely true and fundamental so we should repeat it <laughs> absolutely um you know and and we need to know the basics and we do need to have confidence that christ will govern as needed so we can't take the reins of the church it's in the hands of the bishops but we certainly can pray for them to some extent you know we like if we hear of renegade um, you know, is renegade theologian or priest claiming this, that, or the other thing. Catholic Church is not the one true church. Um, you know, all, all all Christian churches are more or less equal. We no longer believe no no salvation outside the church, anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, we hear that, we can say, ah, oh, no, we do. You know, so we can we can make um, corrections. We don't need to just um, now. We can't. We don't have authority to go and make any like formal judgments, but we can say, no, sorry, this is not true. This is true. And we cite the church's um, infallible teachings mm-hmm. and, and, and insist on them. And, and also in educating our, our, our own children um, or others, if you're, you know, if you're a teacher, uh, religious uh, ed director, that kind of thing, you know, teach the true faith, use a good catechism. The, these things build people up. They don't, children don't want to die for, or even you know come back to mass for a banal message they want to come they'll come back they'll go to mass if you give them the truth and it, it doesn't need to have like a rough and hard edge it but it does need to be firmly planted and confident um you know what what more can we say mm-hmm. it's beautiful the catholic faith is beautiful but we, we seem to have forgotten that yep yep chris fantastic book where can people find your book false mercy recent heresies distorting catholic truth sophiainstitute.com and with that that's all we have time for today chris i want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule and spending with us any closing thoughts no it was fantastic thanks so much i appreciate it what's your um what's your viewership like where does it distribute that kind of thing so this this episode will be on breadboxmedia.com nice nice awesome thanks so much you're welcome with that you've been listening to off the shelf here on breadbox media i'm your host until next time God bless.